Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are now undertaking a study of the book of Second Peter. In this audio, I'm going to cover Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to call this section of Scripture Becoming Partakers of the Divine Nature because this section contains one of my favorite Scriptures in all of the New Testament. It's not talked about too much by Western Christians. We'll talk about it thoroughly when we get there. So before we start out on Second Peter, let's do a little bit of introduction. The author, of course, is Simon Peter. Now, some people doubt that, but let's look at the evidence for his authorship. First of all, he identifies himself as such. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Second Peter, Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. So he identifies himself as Peter. He uses the first person singular pronoun in a highly personal passage right here at the last four verses that we're going to take up today. Therefore, I will remind you, I consider it right as long as I am in this body. I will soon lay aside my tent, and I will most, I'll also make every effort that you will recall these things. He's talking about himself personally, and if it wasn't really Peter writing that, somebody's going to figure that out pretty soon. I would think Peter claims to be an eyewitness of the transfiguration, Second Peter 1, verses 16 through 18, in our next audio. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter's referring to what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there, and he talks about it here in chapter 1. For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is saying, hey, I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's who's writing this book. And he asserts that this is his second letter to his readers, because in Second Peter 3, verse 1, he says, Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to, the first letter being First Peter. And nobody doubts First Peter's authorship. Okay, so the evidence is overwhelming. This belongs to Second Peter. Why do some people say it, the letter is not written by Peter? Well, because of stylistic differences. Now, there's a quick answer to that. <clears throat> the differences aren't absolute. There are many stylistic similarities as well as differences. Also, there's no other known writing that is as close to 1 Peter as 2 Peter is. And some, style, some stylistic differences can easily be explained by other factors, such as variations in the subject matter, variation in the purpose of the letter, difference in the time of writing, difference in the circumstances of writing, differences in the sources used, and different scribes may have been employed. Also, another reason why you might have a different style in Second Peter than First Peter is because Peter may have used Silas to polish the Greek in the first letter. In First Peter five twelve, Peter says this Through Silvanus, that's Silas, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. So Silas could have produced that good Greek in First Peter. The Greek in Second Peter is kind of rough, kind of colloquial, I think. When was the book written? Well, it was written towards the end of Peter's life. Peter was martyred under Nero. Nobody seems to deny that. Nero died in sixty eight, so it's likely that the book was written somewhere between 65 and 68 before Peter was martyred. Well, how do we know it wasn't written, say, in AD 40? Well, because First Peter was written in AD, somewhere in the 60s because Paul was in prison in the 60s, and Peter in First Peter makes some reference to, Peter's, to Paul's imprisonment, so we know that it had to be sometime after Paul's imprisonment and before Peter died. And Second Peter, of course, had to be after First Peter. So let's just put it at the end of the 60s somewhere. What's the relationship with Jude? There are obvious similarities with Jude, as many people have pointed out, but there's some also different, obvious differences. Possible reasons for that might be there was a common source that both Second Peter and Jude borrowed from, or maybe Jude or Peter borrowed from each other. 
purpose of Second Peter is to stimulate Christian growth, is to combat false teaching, especially a Gnostic type of teaching probably, and is to encourage watchfulness concerning the Lord's return, either the Lord's return at the end of time or the Lord's return in AD 70 to wipe out the Jewish Christians' persecutors. So we now begin with verse 1. Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. First of all, notice he calls himself Simeon Peter, not Simon Peter. Simeon is the same as Simon. Simeon is the name that was given him at birth. I guess that's why some people call some people Billy when they're young and Bill when they get older. I don't know. Hebrew naming customs that well, but I'm sure it has something to do with that. Peter is the name that was given to him by Christ because the Greek means rock, signifies solidity, the solidity of his faith. And of course, by this time, he is a leader in the church of Jerusalem and one of the greatest leaders of the Christian church, despite his wavering during his time of denial of Jesus on crucifixion night. Now, notice that Peter calls himself a slave. In verse 1, he says, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that he gives himself a highfalutin title, apostle, a high-status apostle, a high-status name, apostle, but then at the same time, he gives himself a low-status name, a slave. Peter was a humble guy. He didn't call himself the vicar of Christ on earth. Now, Peter addresses himself to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege. Who are the those he's writing to? Well, it has been speculated that it's the same people that he wrote to when he wrote First Peter, First Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the temporary residents dispersed in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, those are well-known provinces in Asia or the Anatolia, region of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, well-known. I'm not going to go through where they are. You can look at a map. And there were Jews that were scattered up there, and Peter's writing to them, Jewish Christians who were scattered to them. The NIV Study Bible says these are probably the same people that Peter's writing writing to in First Peter, and I don't doubt it, no, I'm going to assume it. Peter says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours. Equal privilege with ours. Well, who's the ours? The apostles. And notice that the faith of an ordinary believer is equal to that of an apostle. Equal privilege with an apostle. No guruism in early Christianity, the way it should be today also. You have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice God and Savior, God and Savior, who's our Savior is Jesus. So Peter mentions God and Jesus in the same breath. He assumes that Jesus is God as well as Savior. In fact, he calls Jesus Christ God here through the righteousness of our God. Well, there's two ways you can read it. You could say through the righteousness of our God, comma, and through the righteousness of our Savior Jesus Christ. Or you can read it this way, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is our God and Savior. He calls Jesus Christ God directly, if you read it that way. Either way, folks, we know Jesus is God. This is just one more verse of many, many, many that prove that. Now, Peter finishes up verse 2 by saying this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, he's going to mention knowledge a lot through this book. And from that, it has been speculated that Peter is trying to combat a Gnostic-type heresy. Gnosis is, Gnostic, is, is uh, knowledge in Greece, in Greek. And so... Peter is saying, no, they're giving you fake knowledge. I'm giving you true knowledge. And it comes through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And, of course, that knowledge is not just academic knowledge. It's personal relationship knowledge, personal knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, which, if you think about it, is a huge, 
a huge privilege for Christians. I remember one time witnessing to some really screwed up Chinese woman. I mean, she had religious beliefs that I don't think have ever been held by anybody on earth before they were so screwed up. And finally, after she finished talking to me how she, about how she knew this God and believed in this God and this Buddha and this spirit, and, and she finished, I said, well, do you talk with this God very much? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, do you have a relationship with him? And she looked at me like I'd come from Mars. That's the thing about people in false religions. They don't have a relationship. they got a religion, but they don't have a relationship. Well, this idea of knowledge, as I said, is all the way through in First Peter. I'm going to read you some scriptures showing you that. Second Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Two verses later, Second Peter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge. Second Peter 1, 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I hope I don't have to mention that this is not academic knowledge. This is not Greek philosophical knowledge that Peter's talking about. This is personal knowledge of Jesus. And it includes, of course, scriptures about Jesus, too. I don't want to be mystical or anything, but it's not talking about philosophical knowledge. We go down to verse 3, 2 Peter 1. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. See, when you know Jesus, you get everything required for life. You get everything required for godliness. And that's one of the purposes of this book, is that the readers of the book, the readers of the letter, would attain unto a higher degree of godliness. Now, his divine power, that could be God the Father. It could be God the Son. I'm assuming God the Father. I don't know why. It just sounds like what he's talking about. It's God the Father. His divine power has given us, that could be Christians in general, or it could be the apostles in particular. I if he's saying God's divine power has given us apostles everything, what he's getting at is, hey, it's us apostles that have the true revelation, not these Gnostic-type heretics. But I don't think that's what Peter's saying. In my humble opinion, I think he's saying his divine power has given us Christians because we all, we can make that application easy to us. He's given us Christians everything we need for our lives and everything we need to be godly. How? Through the knowledge of him. Now, Gill says that this everything we need for life and godliness, godliness is spiritual things, and that's what I'm assuming. However, Adam Clark has an interesting take on this. He says it could refer to temporal things. Let me give you his quote. As they, this is the Christians in the dispersion in Anatolia, in those five provinces, as they were in a suffering state, and most probably many of them strangers in those places, one can scarcely say that they had all things that pertain to life. And yet so had God worked in their behalf that none of them perished, either through lack of food or raiment. I tell you, boy, when you're an alien in a strange land and you don't have a job and you don't have an advanced economy, feeding yourself would be of high priority, not to mention what if you get sick. So clean water, food. So Clark might have a point there because everything is everything, spiritual things as well as temporal things that you need for life. That reflects what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. What have you got to worry about, folks? Look at the birds. Do they worry? Look at the lilies of the field. Do they worry? So how do we get this life in godliness through the knowledge of him? And again, that's personal relationship knowledge. This Jesus, knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now, Peter mentions calling in other places in his two letters. Second Peter 1.10, he says this, Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. And First Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen race, a royal 
priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now notice that in the scripture, as, as, as well as in the two epistles of Peter, the emphasis is on God's calling, not on our seeking. Seek God, seek God, I was looking for God, I was looking for God. No, it's God calls us, and then we respond to that call. Let me read the Calvinist favorite verse. There are many in verses that they don't quote too much. John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, i.e. calls him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You're not going to seek Jesus because you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You are nothing but a miserable, rotten, lousy sinner before you get saved. Then Jesus calls you out of your cesspool of sin, and then you respond. So we're called. Now we're called how? By Jesus' own glory and goodness. Or maybe it's God's own glory and goodness. What is glory? And I've studied the Bible says that's God's attributes and essence. Use a nice philosophical language there. And I add to that, it's God's attributes and essence which are publicly displayed for people to see. The NIV says God's glory is his excellence in being who he is, but then his goodness is God's excellence in action, as the NIV study Bible says, deeds that he does for us. Well, who he is and what he does for us, it all goes into our calling so that we might have knowledge of Jesus and that we might have everything required for life and godliness. We go to verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 1. By these, by what? God's glory and goodness, what we, that, what we just talked about. So by God's glory and goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. He has given us, is that the apostles, or is he given us Christians? I think it's talking about us Christians, in my humble opinion. By God's glory and goodness, he's given us Christians very great and precious promises. And John Gill says those are all the promises of eternal life that come with the new covenant. And I just summarize that by saying all the promises that grant us justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's everything you need to know about life and godliness. So all these promises all scattered through the new covenant, through the New Testament. He's given us those so that through them you may do what? You may share in the divine nature, or in the Greek is you may be sharers, according to Koinonia, Koinonia, Koinononoi, Koinononoi, gosh, I can't say it, Koinononoi, that's the noun form of sharers. The Holborn Christian Study Bible turns it into a verb so that through them you may share. Now that word, Koinonia, of course, you're probably familiar with because we use it all the time. It's translated in various places in the New Scripture to talk about sharing or participating in, have fellowship with, communion, the communion table, the Lord's Supper, the agape love feast is also called is described by that word koinonia, we get to be sharers in that. And what? We get to be sharers in the divine nature. Now think about what that means. Does that mean that Christians become divine, that we become God, as Kenneth Copeland says, that we become little gods? Oh no, that's nonsense. But what does it mean? Well, the NIV study Bible, after denying that it means that Christians become divine, they add that since the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we participate in the attributes of God. Now that makes a lot of sense. For example, God... In his essence, is holy, but we share some of his holiness because one of God's attributes is holiness, and we share some of that holiness. God is love. We share some of his love. God is powerful. We share some of his power. He's glad to share it with us because we're his children. Now, that's not blasphemous to say that. If it would be, then Peter would be blasphemous, and he's not. Now, our humanity and personality remains distinct from God as we share in this divine nature. 
as we become one with him, if I may speak a little bit mystical. But hey, married men and women are one, but they don't lose their individuality. There's a sharing of their lives. There's not an identity of their, of their lives. So we are not identical with God, but we do share with God. We are in union with him. Here's a quote from John Gill. By way of resemblance and likeness, the new man or principle of grace being formed in the heart and regeneration after the image of God and bearing a likeness to the image of his son. Now, that's straightforward enough, but in my humble opinion, this verse is not emphasized enough in evangelical Christianity. Evangelical Christianity, at least in its intellectual aspects, tends to be rationalist and logic chopping like Western philosophy. Distinctions are emphasized rather than unity. How are we different than God? Well, that's fine, but you need to emphasize also we become sharers in God's nature. That's who we are. It's good to guard against mystical extremes, but it's not good to miss the point of the verse, which is that we are sharers in God's very nature. So when we get down about lunatics tearing up American cities with riots and resigning from college student government presidencies and vice presidencies because of being committing the sin of being white and all the other craziness that's going on right now in the year of our Lord 2020, we got to remember we are partakers of God's nature, and he's not worried about all this stuff. So when we say we're partakers of the divine nature, we, we can say we're one with God, we're in union with God, we're in God, and God is in us, we're a new man in Christ. It's all pointing to the same thing. In fact, whenever I see that in Christ, I always translate it, as Jameson Fawcett Brown does, in union with Christ. Now, as we share in the divine nature, Peter says we escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. That's how you fight evil desires, folks, not by keep using your flesh to keep the law. You escape evil desires that are in the world by sharing in the divine nature because God doesn't have anything to do with evil desires. He doesn't want them. And the more you share his nature, the less you're going to want to do evil. You're going to look at that prostitute looking real sexy and you're going to get nauseated instead of enticed, etc. Or when you hear that God talking about how you're going to get rich, all you got to do is invest in this IPO. And God says, what do I need? I don't need all that money. I'm not going to sell my soul to the almighty dollar. I'm not going to do that. don't want to do it. Big difference when you try to beat evil desires that way compared to trying to beat evil desires by keeping the law. The King James has evil lust, which I like better. Than, well, it has lust. I like that better than evil desires. It means the same thing. We now go to verses 5, 6, and 7 of Second Peter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, the nice, nice thing about these three verses is that Christian virtues are mentioned, and they're very easy to understand, and I'm not going to make a lot of effort to explain them, but I will point out this. He starts out with faith. He says, supplement your faith. So you start out with faith. It's mentioned first because it's the foundation of all these other Christian virtues that are listed. He also mentions in verse 6, self-control. He mentions knowledge with self-control. Add self-control to your knowledge. Now, knowledge, of course, is probably referring to these Gnostic heretics. And Gnostic heretics were famous for saying that the body is evil. The good, the good demiurge didn't create it, but the bad demiurge did. I, I might have the, the terminology wrong, but the, the good God didn't create the body, but the bad God did, so therefore the body is evil. Therefore, since the body is evil, it doesn't matter what we do with it, so we can go shack up when the next prostitute comes along. We can get drunk. We can be gluttons. And Peter is contradicting that by saying, no, add to your knowledge, true knowledge, not Gnostic knowledge, add to that true knowledge that comes with knowing Jesus, add to that self-control. Don't just let your body go wild and do what the heck you want to with it. 
And then with his other virtues, endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection. He mentioned that in First Peter 4, 8. He says, above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. You got somebody that's not less than perfect, which most people I know are less than perfect, but you don't care so much because you love them. That doesn't mean you don't rebuke them every now and then. If, if, if necessary, not if it's not necessary, but if necessary, you might have to, but you still love them. And brotherly affection is attitude with love. That's how he finishes up verse 7. Add love to brotherly affection. I guess love is a little bit stronger than affection. Affection is sort of like you have a nice feeling towards somebody. Love means you do something for them. Verse 8, 2 Peter 1. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that word knowledge again. But you know Jesus. You don't just know knowledge. You just don't know gnosis. Secret knowledge that the gurus have. No, you know Jesus Christ himself personally. Notice that these qualities that were listed in the last three verses, endurance, love, self-control, knowledge, and so forth, they are increasing. For these qualities are yours and are increasing. That shows that spiritual growth is a process. I-N-G, it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight, and it's meant to be increasing. You are supposed to be transformed from glory to glory as you get closer and closer to the image of Jesus Christ. You're not supposed to stagnate. You're not supposed to sit around drinking the milk of the word, forgetting the meat of the word. You're supposed to keep growing. And these good qualities that we just mentioned in the previous verses will keep you from being useless. The idea if you don't grow, if these qualities aren't growing, you are useless. You are unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have knowledge of Jesus Christ, but you're not growing, so you become useless and unfruitful. That's some strong language. We need to grow, folks. The Gnostics were useless and unfruitful in their knowledge, but you... Christians, don't be useless and fruitful in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. We go now to Second Peter 1, verse 9. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. The person who lacks these things, what things? All those qualities. Let me read them again because you might have forgotten them. The person who lacks these things, faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. You lack those things, you're blind and short-sighted. Again, strong emphasis on growing. You don't grow. You're blind and short-sighted. And you have forgotten the cleansing from your past sins. Now, this shows that Peter is addressing Christians because he says this person that is blind and short-sighted has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. So he was justified. He was declared righteous. He was born again. He was regenerated. But then he became blind and short-sighted. Now, this verse proves that there's such a thing as a carnal Christian. Carefully defined. Now, that's a huge theological controversy. A lot of the Reformed Lordship Salvation types say that if you just say that you're saved, but you don't really show any fruit and you live like hell, well, then you probably weren't saved at all. And, and to say that that person is a carnal Christian and is going to heaven anyway is foolish. Well, I agree with that. But that doesn't mean there's no carnal Christians. Sure, somebody can give a fake confession and be a reprobate thinking he's a Christian. That's not really a carnal Christian. That's a fake Christian. But there are some people who get saved and don't grow. Now, what are you going to call those? I call them a carnal Christian. And, you know, if the Reformed Lordship Salvation, Salvation people don't like that, well, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't believe in Zane. What's his name? Hodges. The famous, I can't, I can't remember his name. He's the guy at the Dallas Seminary that, that started talking about what, what the Reformers called easy believism. All you got to do is believe. You, you, oh, you, you, you don't have faith. You don't mention repentance. You just believe. No, it's faith and repentance. Those are two sides of the same coin. I don't believe in all that stuff, but I do believe that there's such a thing as an immature Christian. If you don't want to call him carnal, he's immature. He's blind and short-sighted. How many times have you been blind and short-sighted? I know I have been. 
Hey, nothing. You just can't beat Christian maturity. And having somebody to help you and to point out, hey, you know, maybe you ought to think about doing something else and not doing this. Because what you're doing ain't helpful to you. I've had it happen to me when I was younger. I doled out plenty of advice, too, to a lot of young Christians because I was a college professor and met a lot of them. Of course, it's amazing how many times they didn't listen to me. But uh, nonetheless, because they were blind and short-sighted. However, most of them grow out of their immaturity and become mature Christians. Might as well be positive about it. Now, notice that blind and short-sighted is sort of impossible. How can you be blind and short-sighted at the same time? Then I've studied Bible and James and Fawcett and Brown point that out. Oh, then I've studied Bible points that out. So then I've studied Bible and James and Fawcett and Brown suggest maybe there's a better translation for short-sighted, like to shut the eyes. So the person who lacks all these nice qualities we just talked about has shut his eyes and is sh- is blind. And it shut his eyes. I like that. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. Confirm your calling. We've already talked about calling. That's when God calls you and says, I want you. And he, and he draws you into his kingdom. But how do you know that? Well, you need to confirm it. How do you confirm it? You grow some fruit. He says, confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, what things? The things I just we just read about. In verses 5, 6, and 7. If you do these things, you will confirm your calling. Have faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Folks, if you're in the world and if you are an old self, an old man, you are not going to be doing those things with regularity. I guarantee you that. You're going to have a whole new nature. So if you want to know that you're saved, look at your life and look at your mind changes. It becomes conformed to the image of Christ. And if all those qualities are increasing, that will confirm it too. As Peter says in verse 8. So make every effort to confirm your calling and election. If you do those things, you will never stumble. And If you keep growing in the Lord and keep being more and more sanctified, progressively sanctified, closer and closer to your glorification at the end, you're not going to stumble. And Peter says you're never going to stumble. The way to avoid stumbling is not is by not backsliding, by increasing in your holiness and your godliness. Confirm your calling and election. Let me read the elect, famous election verse, because in case there's an Armenian listener to this, I know they don't like to hear this verse quoted all the time, Adam by Calvinist, but I'm going to do it. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Praise the God and Father of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us, or he elected us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. See, he elected us for a purpose, to be holy and blameless. And that's what Peter's talking about here, confirming your calling and election by, by increasing in the knowledge of Christ with all those wonderful spiritual characteristics that he talked about. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself. Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So that's the famous election verse that Calvinists all the time like to quote. Now, of course, Armenians say, well, he chose us as a church. He didn't choose us individually. Oh, that's so, that's really comforting, isn't it? He chose us as a church, and I decide. I decide whether I'm going to join in the church or not. It's all up to me. God has a vote. I've got a vote. And the devil has a vote. God and the devil are locked in battle trying to decide whether Dan Trotter gets in the church. And then I choose to get in. Well... I would suggest that if you're an Armenian, you need to rethink your theology. Very, I'm serious, very humbly. You need to rethink your theology, that because that's not the way it is. Now, Peter says, if you do all these things, increase in the possession of all these spiritual qualities. You'll confirm your calling, your election, God's choosing of you. And then he says, you will never stumble. Well, it's not only assurance 
that we get, that's from confirm. When God confirms our calling, he gives us assurance when we see fruit growing in our lives. That's confirmation. But he also says, you will never stumble. Well, there's perseverance right there. So not only assurance, but perseverance comes from growing fruit. We'll, never st- we'll confirm our calling, assurance, and we'll never stumble, perseverance. Now, what happens if somebody does not grow this fruit? It's not increasing in this fruit. Does that mean he could lose his salvation? Well, Clark says yes. He's an Arminian. And he says this because the word stumble is used in Romans 11.11 of the Jews who have lost their election. Romans 11.11, I ask then, have they stumbled in order to fall? Absolutely not. So Paul is saying they did stumble, but then they stumble. On the contrary, by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Well, it's kind of interesting. Clark says they lost their election. Well, they come grafted back into the kingdom at the end of Romans 11, so I'm not sure how he's saying they completely lost their election. So I'm not really sure what his point is about that, but even if it is, it's not referring to individual people there in Romans 11. How can one stop being a son once he's a son? Once God has adopted you in his family, made you born again of the imperishable word of God, has put his Holy Spirit, mingled it with your spirit as a sperm, is mixed with an egg, and you become a new man, a new creation, are you telling me that that process is going to be reversed in some way? I mean, even in the world, we don't say that. Once I have a son, he might be a bank robber, but he's still my son. Not that I'm happy about it. God's not happy when we don't grow in grace and grow in love and grow in spiritual fruits, but we're still his sons. God help us if we have to maintain our salvation based on how holy we can get. Oh, are we growing in are we growing in these qualities enough? Are we increasing in these qualities as as Peter says in verse 8? If we keep growing then we'll be we won't be useless or unfruitful. We need to keep growing because if we don't we might lose our salvation. No, 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 folks. That's not the way to go. We go to 2 Peter verses 11 and 12. For in this way entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly supplied to you. The idea of never stumbling means you're going to keep on going till you enter into the kingdom. That's here in verse 11. Entry into the eternal kingdom. Now, is that entry into the church? John Gill denies that. I think he's right to to deny that because it says entry will be richly supplied to you. And so that means it's probably the eternal state. You keep keep on persevering, don't stumble, and then you'll walk right into the eternal state. Things are tough down here, but boy, if you just keep right on moving, you'll end up in the kingdom with Christ. In verse 12, Peter says, in chapter 1, verse 12, 2 Peter, Peter says, Therefore, I will always remind you about these things. Now, he says he needs to remind them, even though he also says his readers were established. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you have. They're established, they know them, and he tells them again. So, teaching something one time is not enough. We constantly need to be reminded about things in the Scripture. You can't hold it all in in your head or in your heart, in your mind, in your being the first time, even though you've got a hold of it. Circumstances change, time goes by, and you need to be reminded again. He had already written them one letter, 1 Peter, so he's reminding them again about the things he had said in 1 Peter. He's reminding them again here in 2 Peter, as Adam Clark says. This idea of entry into the eternal kingdom Adam Clark says that seems to be an allusion to triumphs granted granted by Romans to their generals after a victory. Triumphs were a big deal in the Roman Empire. A a general could go a whole lifetime without having one. I think Augustus Caesar had four because he was a big shot emperor. But many generals went their whole lifetime and never got one. It had to be a big victory. It had to be granted by either the emperor or the senate or both. And And it was a big deal. And so it's a big deal when we enter into our kingdom eternal kingdom of Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a triumphal entry, if you will. 
We go now to verses 13 and 14 in Second Peter chapter 1. Peter says this, I consider it right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder, knowing that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has also shown me. God, Jesus has revealed to Peter that he's going to die pretty soon. Of course, tradition has it he was, uh, uh, he was crucified upside down in Rome under Nero. They were going to just crucify him, but he said, no, you crucify me upside down because Jesus was crucified, and I'm, I'm not worthy to be in an exalted position as Jesus was, and so he was crucified upside down. Now, nobody knows whether that tradition is true or not, but it's quoted a lot. A lot of Protestants even believe it, so I'm going to assume it's true. But any, So he's not just laying aside his tent. He's going in a very cruel and horrible way if that tradition is accurate. Of course, the tent is his bodily tent, the tent of his body. This idea of your body being a tent, a temporary dwelling, 2 Corinthians 5.1, is mentioned by Paul. For we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, our bodies are temporary. They don't last. They need repair. We have to go to the doctor all the time. We've got to pray for healing. We have a building from God, an eternal dwelling that heaven is not made with hands, which means our spiritual body is not going to need any maintenance. Now, how nice is that going to be? Now, the timing of when we have our eternal tent is controverted because then you've got the intermediate state. The spirit, the, the, the Christian dies, the spirit goes to heaven. Does he get a temporary body then, or does, does he live in a disembodied state until the final resurrection? I tend to think that, but nobody can prove it one way or the other. But at any rate, at some point, we're going to get any, a tent in, I mean, not a tent, but a body in heaven, a building in heaven. Paul contrasts the temporary tent, flimsy tent, with the rock-solid building in heaven. We're going to get that. Resurrection of the body is important, folks. It's in the Nicene Creed. It's in the Bible. It's everywhere. In case you happen to be a hyper-preterist heretic, don't believe that. Now, Jesus, Peter says that Jesus has shown him that he's about to lay aside his tent. Well, when might that be? Well, it could, be, could have been at John 21, verses 18 through 19. Jesus says to Peter, this is post-resurrection, up near the Sea of Galilee, I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He, Jesus, said this to signify by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. And of course, that's crucifixion when they stretch out your hands and tie you up. Some people speculate, like the NIV Study Bible suggests that maybe it was a revelation subsequent to John 21, 18 and 19 that Jesus told Peter he was about to die. John Gill says it was a strong impulse on his mind. But at any rate, however it happened, Peter knew he was going to die. And so he's leaving this letter behind, as well as First Peter, to wake you up with a reminder so that they'll remember what he said after he was dead and gone. King James Version, instead of wake you up, has stir you up. John Gill says, stir the readers up to the lively exercise of grace and constant performance of duty. Peter says in verse th 13, I consider it right. Why does he consider it right? John Gill says it's because it is his duty as an apostle to do it. Of course it's right. Now notice he says he's going to lay aside his tent. Peter acts like it's no big deal, as John Gill says. It's like putting off a garment, as Jameson Fawcett Brown says. You know, you lay your shirt on your bed at night and nobody thinks a thing about that. That's what Peter thought about dying. No big deal. Only Christians can live like that. You can live like that as a Christian knowing that when you die, it's just a go going through a door. You're going to live forever. Jesus promised eternal life. I think it's at John chapter 8, I think it is, somewhere. I'm going to wake you up with a reminder. Now, Peter's already mentioned reminding them before, just a couple of verses earlier in verse 12. We're in verse 14 now. Verse 13, he says, reminder. But verse 12, he says, 
In 2 Peter 1, he says, Therefore I will always remind you about these things. Now let me say something about that. We do need to be reminded, but I remember the hyper-faith heretics used to always say, I used to get so sick of them preaching faith all the time. Now faith is a wonderful thing, and 20, 30 years later I came back, actually did some teaching on it, some studying on it, but it's been perverted by Joel Osteen and his buddies, Kenneth Copeland. But I remember one time, one of these faith preachers said, why do, you, why do we talk about faith every time we speak? And I thought to myself, that's a good question. I'd like to know because I'm sick to death of it. And he says, because people don't understand. We've got to drill it in their heads. Well, that's taking a truth and going too far with it. Because, yes, it's true that people need to be reminded. But they don't need to be dragooned. They don't need to be bludgeoned with the same thing every week. Like the famous the Baptist stereotype. Every Sunday, salvation. Every single Sunday. Teaching. Christians as if they were non-Christians and trying to get them into the kingdom when most of the people in the church are already believers. You're not going to grow that way, and that's just foolishness. That's an abuse of this. But we do need to remind each other of things in the gospel. That's not the same thing as screaming it at them every week. Well, what was Peter going to remind them of? Well, these qualities that I've been mentioning all the way through here, verses 5, 6, and 7. Faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Remind them to do what? to grow all those things. All right, let's go to verse 15. We'll finish up this audio. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 says this, And I will also make every effort that you may be able to recall these things at any time after my departure. His departure where? Well, he's, he's talking about laying aside his earthly tent, his departure from this life. The Greek there is exodus, his exodus from this world. Exodus, of course, has the idea of escaping bondage, and his idea is living in this life is a little bit of slavery here. I want to go to freedom in heaven where I get my eternal building, lay aside this flimsy tent. King James has after my decease, which makes it a little clearer. Now, how is Peter going to make every effort that they can, all these things that he's reminding them of, that they're going to remember that? Well, here's a couple of options. One, he could remind them by passing on his gospel information to Mark. And I've studied Bible, James and Fawcett and Brown suggests that. And then Mark then wrote his gospel so that they could recall those things. And, of course, we know that early tradition connects Mark with Peter. That's well, well known. Now, the NIV Study Bible makes a note here that Peter may have unintentionally been responsible for Mark's gospel. He might have told it, Mark everything about his life with Jesus, and then Mark listened and wrote it down and then wrote his gospel, and Peter didn't have the intention of Mark writing a gospel. We don't know that. I don't know. So we don't know whether that's every effort meant, I make every effort that you can recall these things because I'm giving all this information to Mark. I think, more reasonably, he made every effort that they would be able to recall these things. And the they, of course, is the, the believing Hebrew Christians in the diaspora in Anatolia, present-day Turkey. He made every effort that they would recall all those wonderful things that they should do by leaving them his letters, First Peter and Second Peter. Gil Clark and Jameson Fawcett Brown all suggest that, and I think that's right. He made every effort, all right. He left letters. Of course, Christians today have got too busy doing programs, you know, to read those letters. But I think that if we are good followers and disciples of Jesus, we'll do what Peter said. He said, you need to be growing in all these qualities, and I made every effort that you're going to remember those things, so I've written these letters for you, so read them. Meditate upon them. Memorize them. Study them. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with First Peter, Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And our next audio, we'll take up Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 16 through the end of the book. I'm going to call that section Christ, Glory, and the Prophetic Word. Hope to have you on board for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.